Hello and welcome back to the first episode of Researcher Radio in 2019. Obviously we've been off for a bit celebrating Christmas and New Year, so I hope everybody had an amazing Christmas, a happy New Year, and I'm wishing everyone an extremely prosperous 2019. So for those that may not have listened to Researcher Radio at all in the 2018, this podcast is basically your regular look at research that's making waves in the scientific community and the authors of those papers. So my name is Joe Fenton, and as last year and into this year, I will be your host again. So today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Samifa Nalu from the University of Chicago. So Samifa is the author of The Molecular Genetic Basis of Herbivory Between Butterflies and Their Host Plants. Today, we'll be finding out a bit more about both the paper, the person behind it, and also how they deal with the pitfalls of academia and productivity in academia. So Samifa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. So um, I've just introduced you. Obviously, you're at the University of Chicago. But before we talk about your paper, could you give us a bit of a background on yourself? What's your academic journey been like so far? Hmm, sure. Um, I'm a broadly trained biologist who combines tools from various disciplines like molecular biology, microbiology, population genetics, and genomics to study the intricate genetic network between the plant host uh, and its symbiont or pathogen or herbivore. So these are all like biotic and uh, also abiotic interactions. I did my PhD in plant biological sciences at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, my PhD thesis was on the expression, regulatory, and evolutionary patterns of a large family of genes called fencin-like genes uh, that are found in Medicago trinkatala. Uh, Medicago is a model legume. Then uh, I came to Joy Bergelson's lab at the University of Chicago for a postdoctoral project on resistant genes, or commonly called as R genes. Um, these genes belong to the plant defense family in uh, Arabidopsis thaliana. Again, this Arabidopsis is considered as the model plant among all the plants. So then um, next, I moved to uh, Kronfuss lab in the same department and uh, started working on different projects, um, though the main project has been the molecular genetics of herbivory between the butterflies and their host plants. And so what got you fascinated and interested in this topic overall in the first place? And that could either be, you know, this particular project or what you study in, in general. So um, I decided uh, that I would work on plants uh, when I first started thinking about my PhD thesis. So I was looking for opportunities um, in you know, the plant systems as models. And then um, when I started looking at like the different kind of projects that were available, I found the, you know, this project where the plants, uh, you know, how they were interacting with their symbiotic partners, the rhizobia, and uh, how these whole big family of genes uh, that are, you know, uh, found in these plants are helping the plant uh, to interact with these symbionts. So, you know, and then I, once I was done with my PhD, I continued working with 
there are interactions of plants with their pathogens. And uh, right now I'm working with uh, the plants, their interactions with their herbivores, which is like the insects. And now I have currently moved on to the plant and uh, the abiotic factors, like, you know, the environmental factors like CO2 and temperature. Um, so, you know, uh, just this whole concept of how the plants are interacting with their environment, uh, though, be it abiotic or biotic, was very interesting and appealing to me. Okay, so you recently published this particular paper in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. And so for those that may not have read it or might not follow this uh, particular journal, could you give us an overview of what you accomplished in this paper? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, the host plant and butterfly herbivore interactions have been the model system for the concept of coevolution. Um, during the course of coevolution, plants are thought to continuously strengthen their defense repositories and herbivores in turn follow suit with countermeasures to override them. So it's like a, a war arms race between the plants and their herbivores. So it's like a very coevolutionary arms race. Um, prior to our work, there were some interesting studies on the genetics of plant-insect interactions in the plants um, and also insects, but in separate studies, never together. Our paper is one of the first to study the molecular mechanisms in both the host plants and the herbivore insects simultaneously using genomic tools like genome-wide studies um, and transcriptomics uh, in the model plant Arabidopsis thaliana and its herbivore butterfly, the Paris rapi. It's also commonly called as a cabbage white butterfly. Um, parallel genome-wide studies uh, in Arabidopsis and cabbage wide, white revealed a set of candidate genes for herbivory in both insect and plant. Um, analyzing the whole transcriptome over the time course of the feeding interaction showed that a large set of genes um, are being regulated in a dynamic way. And further comparative transcriptomic analysis uh, which included four diverse butterfly or plant systems, showed a variety of genome-wide responses to herbivory and also identified a core set of highly conserved genes uh, in both butterflies as well as their host plants. Okay, so I just want to pick up on the idea of the comparative transcriptomics within the paper and ask you if you can explain this at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, when we did uh, Arabidopsis and Thaliana and Spirus butterfly, uh, you know, time course transcriptomics, uh, we found that there was a strong response uh, of Arabidopsis to the butterfly eggs. So we wanted to see if this was a general pattern uh, between the butterfly plant interactions or was it very specific to Arabidopsis and Pyrus. So we expanded our analysis of gene expression to three additional plant insect systems. Um, Medicago sativa, uh, commonly called as alfalfa. It's a, it's a huge forage crop uh, in the US Midwest. Um, and it's butterfly uh, herbivore, which is coleus urethene. Uh, this is like the clouded sulfur butterfly. Uh, the other system was uh, citrophotonella or like the citrus family that has like oranges and limes. Uh, 
um, and uh, their butterfly herbivore, which is the tapeliopolides, are commonly called as uh, swallowtails. Um, and passiflora, the third system was passiflora, uh, also called as passion fruit, uh, and its butterfly, the heliconius signal. So, um, you know, these were like a different, uh, coming from different evolutionary plates, so, and uh, were easily available also. So we compared uh, the differential expression among all these uh, different systems, and we found that uh, there is a substantial variation in uh, the responses of uh, both plants and uh, butterflies in all these systems. Um, there was nothing similar, very, very different. And uh, to further investigate if there were any um, components of the defense network that were conserved among uh, the plants or among butterflies, uh, we extracted and compared uh, the common differentially expressed genes across the four systems. A small set of genes were found to be conserved among the four plants. Uh, and the majority of these genes, these conserved genes, uh, had predictive roles in defense systems. Um, similarly, even among the butterflies, uh, there was a small set of conserved genes, um, among which Osiris 9 um, stood out uh, because it was upregulated in all four butterfly species. Um, now, uh, we, the function of Osiris 9 is unknown. But uh, recent studies uh, show that the Osiris gene family uh, is involved in the detoxification of the plant host toxins on, in Drosophila. So it, it, these were very interesting. All these were very interesting results that we found uh, by doing the compatible transcriptomics. Okay, and I'm just going to, the next question, I'm going to go back into the paper. And, you know, some of these questions that I ask our guests that come on may seem simplistic or not worth mentioning at all but for me I'm just curious to know why you used the offspring of wild caught females for this particular study yeah that's uh, that's a good question so um apart from the transcriptomics uh, we also used uh, the genome wide analysis as a tool to find the candidate genes right so the, we were investigating the genetic basis of the host plant insect interaction, uh, utilizing the natural variation that is found in the population uh, in a GWAS or the genome wide association studies framework. Uh, GWAS is a powerful tool uh, to characterize the genetic basis of phenotypic traits using uh, the natural variation found in the populations. So for, in our experiments uh, here, for the plant GWAS studies, we used 96 uh, naturally available accessions of Arabidopsis thaliana. Uh, these were collections from different parts of uh, Eurasia and uh, North America, and a single lab strain of the Paris butterfly. And for the butterfly GWAS, uh, we couldn't get uh, butterflies from you know, different parts of the world but uh, we just decided to, uh, you know, uh, go around like different parts of the Midwest uh, in U.S. and uh, catch, uh, you know, the wild females that were available uh, to increase the natural variation uh, in the, in our study. So we caught 96 females or females in specific because we wanted um, the 
caterpillars or the larvae of these butterflies uh, for our uh, experiments. So the phenotypes that were used uh, in our experiments were uh, the amount of weight gained and the amount of leaf surface eaten uh, by the five-day-old larvae over a period of 72 hours. So that's why uh, we collected females in specific. Yeah, because in my, um, my preparation for this uh, particular episode, I managed to find the video produced by the University of uh, Chicago and the Confrost Lab. And I saw, you know, you guys running around trying to catch these butterflies in the Hard Pike area and in your campus. And it did look like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could see that uh, there was this oh, nice <laughs> video that was recorded when we were actually going around catching butterflies. Uh, uh, many people found it amusing for the scientists <laughs> to, you know, run around catching butterflies. But it was fun, you know. Yeah, it really did look like a, a lot of fun. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so moving away from the, the practical elements or, you know, the actual catching of the butterflies used for this study, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the use of next-generation sequencing used in your study. So what is it and how did it affect this particular paper? Mm-hmm. So this is a heavily genomics-based paper. Uh, first we sequenced and assembled a high-quality Paris genome. Uh, and then for the GWAS, uh, we, we sequenced 96 Paris larvae. Uh, for the transcriptome studies, we uh, de novo assembled all the eight transcriptomes of, you know, the eight uh, plants and butterflies that we were using in the comparative studies. Um, and then we also sequenced the RNA-seq libraries, uh, which were generated from 154 samples. So that was a lot of next-generation sequencing that was used in the study. Okay, so uh, you know, knowledge is is a powerful thing, and everything in academia tries to influence something, whether that be in academia itself or in the the real world. So I'm just curious to know, how do you think this piece could impact either the real world or or academia itself? Mm -hmm. So um, as I was saying, uh, using this next generation sequencing, we generated this big wealth of information of the candidate genes and the putative genetic networks that are involved in the plant-insect interactions across the evolutionary clades of the plants and insects. So, you know, the study has now opened doors to further functional characterization of the candidate genes that were found in the paper and uh, also will, uh, you know, can help in the fine-tuning of the defense network uh, systems of the genes that are found in plants and uh, insects. And for the real-world impact, I would say Arabidopsis thaliana is a small flowering plant that has been widely used as a model system. It belongs to the mustard family, uh, which includes agronomic cultivars such as cabbage and uh, radish. Pyrus rapi is a common pest on the mustard plants, um, this butterfly is uh, widespread across the temperate regions of North America and around the world. The larvae of these butterflies feed on the host plant foliage. Uh, they bore into the heads of these, you know, like cabbage heads and damage the 
you know, the most marketed parts of the plant. So there is like a huge loss, you know, to all these crops. So the real world impact uh, would be obtained by modulating the genes or genetic network uh, uh, that are implicated in the plant insect interactions to generate disease resistant plants or crops um, and avoid huge losses uh, in the agriculture to the pests. Wow, that's really, really fascinating because with my academic background, I understood the paper, but I couldn't make the particular link that you have just made or could not visualize it or conceptualize it in any any manner whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So uh, though Arabidopsis is like just, you know, a scientific, uh, used in the scientific labs, it's not like a crop or something, it's considered as a weed. Uh, we also use like, you know, agricultural crops like citrus, you know, which have like economic value, uh, Mericago, the alpha alpha crop. And, you know, uh, this can be like extrapolated to other uh, crops, species also. So, you know. Okay, and as I mentioned in the introduction to this piece, you published it in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. So I'm just curious to know how the publishing process was for you. Was it uh, a smooth or was it tricky? Like in many cases, quite a lot of academic publications actually are. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, uh, it wasn't difficult to get the paper published. Uh, uh, I, I would say it was pretty smooth, uh, uh, though there were uh, my other papers uh, where uh, it was kind of a rough ride. But for this paper, uh, I think I was, I was very, we were fortunate that, uh, you know, it was pretty smooth. Uh, we first submitted the paper to Nature Genetics, who very politely <laughs> asked us to consider submitting the paper to Nature Ecology and Evolution um, because the editorial board uh, thought it would be a better fit there. Um, and uh, in Nature Ecology and Evolution, um, the we had some very helpful comments and suggestions from the reviewers that uh, helped uh, improve the results and discussion sections of the manuscript. Okay, so so overall not not too bad. Because obviously speaking to some academics, they've um, they've told me some absolute horror stories from some of the papers that they've submitted to particular journals no it wasn't bad it, it, I, I i would say it was smooth but then again you know uh, there were other papers in my career where uh, it was a little bit rough and tough <laughs> okay so submitting a paper to, obviously takes time to make and build and obviously you have to create experiments you've got to keep up to date with the literature you've got a million and one other things to do so i'm just curious to know how you usually spend your week and mm -hmm. um, i i believe in a good work-life balance but you know there are situations uh when work takes over the family time especially like in when you get stuck on a step in data analysis or you're trying to troubleshoot a protocol uh, in your experiment. Um, also paper and grant writing take up a lot of family time. So, you, you know, I, I try to maintain the balance, but sometimes the balance balance gets offset by, you know, situations at work. Okay, obviously, so the metaphor goes, there's a sea of literature out there. And I'm just curious to know, how do you keep afloat in it? Or is it a struggle? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, t 
think uh, spending time on latest literature is very important. Um, I have online subscription to some top journals in my field. Uh, so I get weekly or monthly emails about the latest papers. Um, and then uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are, are also helpful. You can actually follow different scientific groups on these platforms to keep you updated um, on the on, on like new papers and new research. Um, and I also think like academic podcasts like you know Researcher Radio are also a good medium uh, when you don't have time to sit and read, but you can just listen to podcasts while driving or like doing lab work. So you know. Uh, on average, I think uh, I spend around four to six hours per week uh, reading or listening to various media uh, to keep myself uh, updated on the current scientific trends. Okay, so um, a lot of the this particular podcast seeks to aid those that may have faced problems with uh, productivity. And so I like to ask, all the academics that come on as guests here, if they've got any tips that they've used to increase their own productivity or academic output? So I I think I consider uh, myself uh, very organized. So, uh, and I think uh, it has been a major strength for me, especially when I have to balance multiple things at the same time. So um, I would say being organized, planning your schedule, prioritizing the needs. These are all correlated and uh, will help increase the productivity. Okay, and so your field in general, if we go back to, to the actual raw science, what for you is up and coming or do you find really interesting that's occurring in your field right now? So um, more than topics, I would like talk about this tool. Uh, especially in uh, biological sciences, uh, the CRISPR, uh, you know, the CRISPR tool and the gene editing tools uh, are revolutionizing a lot of fields among biology and medicine. Uh, in, in medicine, um, there are trials on genome surgery that are being carried out in different labs right now. Um, the, the whole genome surgery is, uh, you know, the precision targeting of genetic defects in the genome. Uh, using the CRISPR-Cas9 and can be customized to individual patients. Um, and uh, this CRISPR can be, even in agriculture, uh, can be used to generate more successful and stable GMO crops. So I think it will be interesting to see how the different parts of the world uh, will come up with regulations on these CRISPR-modified products. And so what about yourself? What projects or papers have you got in the in the pipeline so um i'm working um i'm continuing to work on like, the different projects but uh, my current uh work right now uh is actually the continuation of the work that is done that was done in this paper uh we are studying the effect of the different environmental factors uh like co2 and temperature on the genetics of plant insect interactions so what would happen uh, to the whole genetic network if we change, say, the CO2 levels uh, or the temperature levels or both CO2 and temperature together? So uh, we have done those experiments. And uh, right now, currently, I'm uh, analyzing the data 
and uh, hope to get the paper out pretty soon. Well, that's um, that's fascinating because I'm extremely interested in, you know, as you said, ideas of warmth and CO2 and how that affects the planet, especially as we go into an age or we're now in an age of you know, environmental enlightenment or there's a, a consciousness around protecting and saving the planet. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The, I mean, very current about like the whole climate change process, you know, things that are happening. So how that will affect the plant-insect interactions, like what will happen to the plants, what will happen to the insects and what will happen to the whole interaction, actually. Okay. And as we're coming to a close on this particular episode, I'm going to ask the same question that I ask every guest that comes on. And that is there one piece of advice for anybody that's about to undertake a PhD or begin their career in academia? Um, I would I would suggest uh, someone who is thinking of doing a PhD um, to make sure the PhD program you're choosing has a variety of research options and to start interacting with as many research groups or teams uh, in your field or department as soon as possible, you know, right from the start, I would say, uh, because research is uh, moving towards more interdisciplinary projects. You know, uh, effective collaborations and network have become a key for a successful academic career. So, you know, networking, talking to, you know, different scientists, uh, you know, fellow scientists, fellow or uh, different mentors and, you know, uh, just network. Yeah, and I find this I find this point extremely fascinating and one that I've never really thought of before. But speaking to the academics that come on this podcast, they've all said that, you know, the world of science is opening and it's opening quicker than it ever has done before. And there's so many cross collaborations across different subjects and departments. Yeah, and not one single person can't do everything, right? So... Uh, of, of course, you are expected to do quite a few things, uh, but, you know, you also have to keep learning and, you know, collaborate with different people uh, to do this big interdisciplinary project. So. Okay, so that's all we've got time for today on Researcher Radio. So we've been joined by Dr. Samita Nalu from the University of Chicago. Samita, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. Okay, before I leave you, guys, I just wanted to thank you so much for your your reviews and your suggestions for the podcast. And moving on and moving forward, I will take your suggestions into account. So again, thank you for sticking with us, and I'll see you next week. Been listening to the researcher podcast you can follow us on twitter instagram facebook or linkedin you can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com or alternatively you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com researcher is free to use on ios android or on your web browser and if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to leave us a review